Well, welcome back, everyone, and welcome to anybody who's uh, just joined us on Zoom. Today is World Invocation Day, a world day of prayer and meditation. And people of every spiritual path join in a universal appeal to divinity and use the great invocation. Sound all right? Yeah. yeah. Together they focus the invocative demand of humanity for the light, the love, and the spiritual direction that's needed to build a world of justice, unity, and peace. World Invocation Day takes place in the influence of the Gemini full moon. I think the actual time is about, what, 4.30 4, 30 tomorrow morning? Got it down here. I've got it uh, here. It's uh, 4.42 GMT tomorrow morning. Yep. So since 1952, the day of the Gemini full moon is also celebrated as World Invocation Day, when a focus is placed on the great invocation to empower humanity's subconscious appeal for the return of a world saviour. The full moon festival is also known as the Festival of Humanity. And it's a propitious time to further stimulate the Christ principle that is awakening in the consciousness of millions of people all over the world. The habitual use of the great invocation keeps the mind and heart in tune with the sound of the coming one. It also aligns us with the center where the will of God is known, Shambhala, touching a chord deep within our soul that resounds to the divine chorus and empowers us to continue serving with strength and with fortitude. Enunciating the great invocation as if it is issuing forth from deep within our soul, sees us take our stand with the chorus of souls that we call the spiritual hierarchy. This ensures a direct and a continuous inflow of the energy of the will to restore the plan on earth. And the more group consciousness we can attain in sounding the great invocation like this, the more the note of humanity synchronizes with the note of the hierarchy. We're assured that a dynamic and an immediate response from Shambhala will come. The interplay of this demand response pattern has the capacity to become one of the greatest liberating forces for humanity. So we'll give, begin now by sounding the adapted Great Invocation together. And this alternative version was produced with the aim of attracting as many people as possible to use it, while having as minimal an effect on its deeper meaning and mantric potency as possible. We'll be using the original Great Invocation later on at the end of our meditation.
from the point of light within the mind of God. Let light stream forth into human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into human hearts. May the coming one return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide all human wills, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center, which we call the human race, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Does have a slightly different cadence, doesn't it? It threw me a little bit. <laughs> but right intention was there. The world's problems are of humanity's making, and so therefore humanity to solve. But the essence of the spiritual life lies in knowing that we're not alone. The energies of divinity are abundantly available. And on World Invocation Day, an appeal is made for the release of the energies which will enable humanity to create the new civilization. In Alice Bailey's book, Esoteric Astrology, we read that Gemini, in which World Invocation Day occurs, is one of the most important of all the 12 signs, and that its influence lies behind every one of them. Furthermore, Gemini relays the force which produces the changes needed for the evolution of the Christ consciousness at any particular point in time and space. It is always compatible to the requirement 
own. It's practical, it's pragmatic. And bearing in mind that this is the festival of humanity, what are the changes needed for the evolution of the Christ principle in the mass consciousness at this particular time in time and space? We should be able to see interesting developments occurring amidst the chaos of our times, developments which may be taking place largely unnoticed by the public, which nevertheless are of real spiritual significance. In the service of the planned study sets, which are freely available on the Lucis Trust website, the divine plan is divided into seven fields of endeavor, government, religion, education, science, philosophy, psychology, and culture and the arts. And while there are some positive changes taking place in all these departments, and we focus on those particularly in the monthly arcane school letters, one area that does seem to get less attention than it deserves from the esoterically minded is the field of philosophy. And those of you who've been with us earlier, we had a great and stimulating conversation about philosophy. And uh, as Simon said as well, you know, that uh, when people are introduced to the right kind of philosophy, who wouldn't like it because it stimulates the questions that we all want answers to deep inside. But the actual sort of lack of appetite, perhaps, for philosophy, apart from the fact that it's very hard, <laughs> is perhaps it's because the Alice Bailey books are themselves classified as esoteric philosophy. They do stimulate a different part of the brain to a degree, though. It's much more intuitive and abstract. Those of you who've read the, some of the Alice Bailey books, you can feel that it's a different hemisphere of the brain. It's a kind of spiritual osmosis, if you like. You absorb the wisdom that George was talking about rather than concrete facts. And that's why they're so precious, because they help you to translate what you're actually reading into practical expression rather than just accumulating knowledge. Lost my place now. I'll keep to the text. But the responsibility of all of us who read the Alice Bailey books is to find the department of the plan with which a special affinity is felt. And then to build plan-imbued thought forms of service, the bridge from where humanity's understanding is now to the next level of unfoldment. It has to address that particular part of the planetary antikarana where the hiatus, the gap is between current human understanding and the next step. It's no good projecting it up as too high where nobody's going to actually be able to make use of the thought forms we build. There has to be some compromise and building the bringing of two worlds together. Gemini's influence is a perfect stimulant for this because as mentioned it concerns the evolution of the Christ consciousness at any particular point in time and space. It facilitates the building of thought structures which are compatible to the requirement. So let's consider the general health and direction of philosophy as a representation of the area of the divine plan in the human kingdom. And contemporary philosophy is particularly challenging 
not least for philosophers themselves. And that's because the field of knowledge has grown tremendously in recent times, fragmenting into a myriad specialized areas of thought. A lot of good work is undeniably being done as randomly chosen lists of the most influential philosophers of today's shows. And as one site pointed out, today's philosophers live in the moment. They're digging into questions that impact our daily lives. But when it comes to humanity's progress towards the world of meaning, to the world of meaning and the world of causes, there's a different picture of philosophy that starts to emerge. And it's one that's well summarized by our contemporary philosopher, Paolo Paranini. Parini. Here's what he says. The sense of confusion about the nature and place of philosophy has been growing and spreading in today's technological and globalized society. Philosophy, as has repeatedly been said, has become ever more like a once vast empire, which progressively lost its provinces. But also because these provinces, i.e. the scientific disciplines, gradually emancipated from it, have been able to develop their own theories, capable to compete in breadth with traditional philosophical conceptions. These theories, these scientific theories, absorb questions which was once reserved for philosophy. They attain outcome, outcomes which actually cast doubts on well-rooted philosophical doctrines and even autonomously turn their own basic principles into problems. And that's where we are at the moment with the problem of scientific theories and scientific philosophy. There's a famous quip that the philosophy of science is about as useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds. Peculiar conclusions of two major theories of the last century, and that's Einstein's relativity and quantum physics, they present such a bizarre vision of reality that no one can really make sense of it. Despite his brilliance and Einstein's mathematical models, fine, the mathematics works perfectly, but the interpretation of what those mathematical equations means Einstein dismissed himself in the end, but such was his genius and the recognition of his genius by his peers, they refused to look for other explanations and it's remained as it was. And we've gone into Alice in Wonderland and Steiner says the same, you know, because the whole theory of relativity can't allow you to move into any other dimension. It's like squeezing a balloon and every time you try to address something, something pops up in another direction of it just keeps producing more and more questions because everything is simply relative to something else there's nowhere to escape from and to start a new kind of philosophy so a bridging philosophy between this world and the etheric levels disappears and einstein got rid of the ether in his famous conversation and discussion with oliver lodge um, and it was at that point that space-time started to take the place of the ether. And it's the ether that has to come back. 
nevertheless, one of the upsides of uh, quantum physics and Einsteinian relativity has been the popularity of various books on quantum mysticism and transpersonal psychology that promote a worldview in which everything is basically interconnected. It's a field of universal consciousness that can be tuned into through somewhat various, uh, various uh, spiritual disciplines. But there is a downside, and that's that prevailing scientific theories are antithetical to a structured hierarchical model of reality, one in which creative hosts of sentient lives build in conformity with the plans of superconscious beings. In the educational climate of today, it's difficult to see how the basic premises of a divine plan and inner spiritual government of the planet and the reappearance of a world teacher could really be discussed in an intelligent fashion. Imagine having that discussion with Richard Dawkins. You know, you're not going to get far, really, and scientists would just make mincemeat out of you. But this is one of the reasons that I think some of us uh, at the Trust believe that the electric universe theory promoted by today's scientific intuitives is so important. Everywhere we look in the heavens, we see rotation. Planets, stars, galaxies, all rotate and revolve around each other. Now, rather than attributing this harmony of the spheres to uncontrolled cosmic explosions and collisions, which is what's done at the moment, these intuitives, they see electrical order on a cosmic scale. The electric universe is one in which heavenly bodies are created. They're built into form and they're made to spin through the agency of tremendously powerful electric currents that span galactic and intergalactic space. The big philosophical questions in this scenario concern the origin and the control of that amount of power and how these currents maintain their shape over such vast distances, because they're clearly not transmitted by cables, are they, like they are on Earth? But the intriguing conclusion is that electric currents in space are self-organizing. I mean, just thinking that just sends a chill down your spine. It's just a wonderful thing to think about that electricity and plasma scientists will tell you this from their experiments in the plasma laboratories. It's a living life form you've got in that uh, vacuum chamber. Um, if you ever look at um, Van der Graaff generators and that, you see the way electric currents behave. It's like a, a living entity. But the fact that electric currents in space are self-organizing, it raises tremendous philosophical questions about intelligent purpose in the universe and the significance of human beings as electrical creators within a greater whole. And it's questions like these that can stimulate further interest in metaphysics, philosophy, religion. For example, esoteric teachings, they equate the electric force with the will of divinity. And they teach how the spiritual will of an individual can project its own currents of electrical force inwardly to communicate with a higher aspect of itself of oneself. 
the ageless wisdom refers to those who do this as weavers in Fohatic enterprise. Fohat being an ancient Tibetan term for many aspects of the electrodynamic force that pervade the multidimensional whole. The electrical nature of the will also injects a fresh dynamic into the long-standing philosophical debate on free will, which we've been having earlier on today. It's through the projection of the will into the world of ideas that a human being finds true freedom. Ideas are electrical entities, and they act as a leaven when they are precipitated into the substance of the human mind. Through the expansions of consciousness that they induce, the individual discovers that the principle of freedom is a fundamental aspect of divine expression. It's these sort of discussions that could be initiated in the context of electric universe theory. And as cosmology is currently in crisis, if you're following the James Webb Telescope uh, you know, story at the moment and all the galaxies that they're finding shouldn't be discovered at the beginning, too close to the beginning of the, what they believe is the start of the universe, it's not only going to start you thinking about how galaxies can possibly evolve so fast, they've got to understand that there might be another explanation for redshift the sort of Doppler effect of redshift and what it actually means. It's intrinsic to the birth of a galaxy. It's the birth of a young galaxy from another galaxy that creates this kind of infrared, this kind of uh, Doppler effect of uh, redshift. And uh, Holton Arp was one of the great astronomers who uh, catalogued all this and clearly showed that some of the most distant galaxies, uh, some of the quasars that are believed to be at the edge of the galaxy and some nearby galaxies are actually connected. And the way he was treated was as a heretic and they stopped him using uh, one of the big telescopes. But James Webb is not going to be so easy to manage because it is going to be a challenge to current uh, scientific thinking and it's going to be a lot bigger than is currently thought at the moment of it. So anyway, you will need to look again at its fundamental assumptions at this time, and perhaps a paradigm shift isn't so far away. But in the meantime, the decline of philosophy as the mother of all knowledge, the guardian of reason, continues. But the positive side of this is that over the last half century or so, it shifted towards the humanities. And one of the most influential social theorists of our time is Jürgen Habermas. And he's played a significant role in this changing direction of modern philosophy. Because while philosophy has traditionally searched for rationality in the structure of the cosmos, current scientific theories, okay, they've cast doubts on these well-rooted philosophical doctrines. And the search for rationality and reason has been redirected. Now, Jürgen Habermas, he describes philosophy's new role as a form of critique that has an emancipatory potential. And his work on communicative rationality 
describes how the human capacity for reason is actually inherent in language, especially in the form of argumentation in what he called the public sphere. Now in its ideal form, the public sphere is described as a sphere that is made up of private people gathered together as a public who articulate the needs of society with the state. Through acts of assembly and dialogue, the public sphere generates opinions and attitudes which serve to affirm or to challenge and therefore to guide the affairs of state. In ideal terms, the public sphere is the source of public opinion needed to legitimate authority in any functioning democracy. I particularly like the fact that Jürgen Habermas looks for rationality within human speech, within language, because it's getting close to the idea of sound as the creative force, and it's within sound and the articulation of it, of sound, that uh, communicating with one another subjectively and bringing ideas into existence between two or more parties is where we find reality. It's through relationship. Jürgen Habermas described the structures of argumentative speech that should ideally take place in the public sphere as the absence of coercive force, the mutual search for understanding, and the compelling power of the better argument. And it was under the influence of Jürgen Habermas that political science began to focus on how communities and populations develop a common will through communication in the public sphere. And this results in the development of what is termed deliberative democracy. They're all yet more terms for sure, but if you actually look at what a term like deliberative democracy means, it's a beautiful phrase. It's described in the Encyclopedia Britannica like this. Rather than thinking of political decisions as the aggregate of citizens' preferences, deliberative democracy claims that citizens should arrive at political decisions through reason and the collection of competing arguments and viewpoints. In other words, citizens' preferences should be shaped by deliberation in advance of decision-making rather than by self-interest. With respect to individual and collective citizen decision-making, Deliberative democracy shifts the emphasis from the outcome of the decision to the quality of the process. In 2021, those who've been developing Jürgen Habermas's thinking succeeded in creating the first global assembly that can claim to legitimately democratically represent the wishes of the global population. And this was the first global citizens assembly and it was for the United Nations climate conference in 2021. As the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres put it, it was a practical way of showing how we can accelerate action through solidarity and people power. The core assembly was created by a NASA database of human population density to produce by lottery 100 locations to recruit 
participants, uh, participants from. Local community organizations were then recruited as close as possible to each point, and these were called community hosts. These are trusted organizations in local communities that bring people together around common activities and beliefs, such as community centers, public libraries, cultural venues, sports clubs, co-working spaces and faith groups, educational institutions, among others. Community hosts then recruited a, a recommended four to six local potential participants representing the diversity of their community. And this was mostly done by having conversations on the street, door knocking, as these methods could be used consistently anywhere in the world to make sure recruitment was not biased towards mobile phone ownership or those who have a formal address even. Alongside the core assembly, people all over the world ran their own community assemblies using a step-by-step -step toolkit. And they took place in workplaces, in schools, places of worship, worship and neighborhoods. And feedback from those assemblies, assemblies are all included in the final report of the 2021 Global Assembly. The vision of the Global Assembly is to give everyone on Earth a seat at the global governance table through that procedure, and by 2030 to have over 10 million annual participants. The Assembly has no legislative power, but it does carry tremendous moral force as a representation of the united will of humanity. And this adds to all the international assemblies that are forming at the moment, over 10 million non-governmental organizations. They're all working on the mental plane, building thought forms, and that is a tremendous way of influencing subjectively as well as practically those who are in positions of power. And that's where our work is too. This latest expression of deliberative democracy is surely a further development in the process of spiritually charging humanity's collective consciousness. The sphere of deliberation is created through goodwill in action, undoubtedly establishing further delicate strands of the planetary bridge of consciousness in human minds and hearts. Assisted by the spiritual hierarchy, these may reach right up to the center where the will of God is known, where a great law called the law of assembly operates in its truest and in its purest capacity. And Christine touched upon this in Geneva, but it's worth just providing the more, the higher sort of correspondence of what's going on to match this uh, development in human thinking, what the hierarchy can do on the center where the will of God is known, where Shambhala operates, what's actually taking place there on a higher octave. Now what's called the law of assembly in Shambhala is only properly understood and worked with clearly by adepts of the spiritual hierarchy. But like all laws that function on the higher planes of the system, their reflected lower aspects seep into human consciousness. And there they often become distorted. And the Alice Bailey writings cite an instance of this occurring when early Christian teachers confused the law of assembly with the law of sacrifice 
And this resulted in the erroneous concept of the vicarious atonement. The idea that Jesus Christ's great sacrifice was to substitute himself for humanity and suffer God's punishment for all of its collective sins. In reality, the vicarious atonement is more correctly understood as substitutionary atonement. And this is the process whereby Christ, working under the law of assembly, anchored the seed, the seed energy of new extraplanetary substance on Earth to inaugurate a new phase of redemption. Under this law, the substance of which all planetary forms are comprised and which no longer serve the purpose of a planetary logos is steadily eliminated and its place taken by that which does. And it's through this process of elimination and substitution under the law of assembly that the Earth system steadily evolves into a greater expression of sacred unity. And that's really what about substitutionary atonement is all about. Those of you who are familiar with Steiner, he has a different sort of slant on it, but it's equally fascinating when he talks about the mystery of Golgotha. And at the time of the uh, crucifixion, the blood had to be spilt from the Christ and touch the earth because the blood is the life. And at that moment, the Christ was able to go through the blood into the whole physical world and every single atom on the planet was infused at its center with the Christ principle. And it was from that point onwards that the Antikorana as a planetary process became possible to humanity to actually work and to touch the Christ principle and to start building towards uh, not only the spiritual hierarchy, but towards Shambhala. But a reflection of this kind of process might be seen in the great assemblies, therefore, and international parliaments. They may all seem a little bit boring, you know, talk, talk, talk. But when you really think what's going on, the ideas that are being seeded at that time, if we can take that look at what's happening subjectively, it really is, uh, gives us so much hope for the future. These great assemblies and these international parliaments that the new group of world servers are establishing in order to debate social philosophy and the common good. It's through this deliberative form of democracy that new forms of thinking that better serve the public good will slowly uh, replace those that have served their purpose. Through the process of communicative rationality, as advocated by Jürgen Habermas, a form of vicarious atonement is taking place in the substance in which human consciousness functions. And it's one that emulates on a lower turn of the spiral the work that the Christ himself undertook under the law of assembly when he last appeared on earth. Through the power of deliberation in the public sphere, humanity can learn to sacrifice selfish, desire-ridden forms of thought in exchange for those which evolve group consciousness and unity through identification with the whole. The keynote of Gemini is I recognize my other self, and in the waning of that self, I grow and glow. And surely we can apply this keynote to humanity now, as there is a growing recognition of the evils in the collective consciousness that have to be overcome. 
alongside a steady reaching out for light. Millions of NGOs, dozens of international parliaments, and now the first global citizens assembly that can truly be said to represent cosmopolitan democracy are all stimulating the mass consciousness. The Christ principle has entered the public sphere and the work before us is to further stimulate it and this in preparation for the reappearance of the Christ himself. And may that day soon be with us. So we're going to our meditation now for 20, 25 minutes on the Gemini full moon outline, which I hope you've all got. It'll be on the screen as well. Letting in the light. Group fusion. We affirm the fact of group fusion and integration within the heart center of the new group of world servers mediating between hierarchy and humanity. I am one with my group brothers, and all that I have is theirs. May the love which is in my soul pour forth to them. May the strength which is in me lift and aid them. May the thoughts which my soul creates reach and encourage them.
alignment. We project a line of lighted energy towards the spiritual hierarchy of the planet, the great ashram of Sanakamara, and towards the Christ at the heart of hierarchy. Extend the line of light toward Shambhala, the center where the will of God is known. Fire interlude. Hold the contemplative mind open to the extraplanetary energies streaming into Shambhala and radiated through hierarchy.
visualize the three planetary centers, Shambhala, hierarchy, humanity, steadily coming into alignment and interplay.
meditation, reflect on the seed thought. I recognize my other self and in the waning of that self, I grow and glow.
precipitation Visualize the energies of light, love, and the will to good pouring throughout the planet. Anchoring themselves on earth through prepared physical plane centers through which the plan can manifest. Sequence of energy precipitation is Shambhala, hierarchy, the Christ, the new group of world servers, people of goodwill, physical centers of distribution. interlude and focus the group consciousness within the periphery of the ashram. In the center of all love I stand. From that center I, the soul, will outward move. From that center, I, the one who serves, will work. May the love of the divine self be shed abroad 
in my heart, through my group, and throughout the world. Visualize the downflow released from Shambhala through the hierarchy, streaming into humanity, through the prepared channel. Consider how these energies are establishing the pathway of light for the coming world teacher, the Christ.
distribution. As the great invocation is sounded, visualize the outpouring of light, love, and power from the spiritual hierarchy through the five planetary inlets, London, Darjeeling, New York, Geneva, Tokyo, irradiating the whole human race. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of men. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of men. May Christ return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of men, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the race of men, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Thank you everyone for a great day's work and uh, we'll do the same again tomorrow.
We have a secretarial workshop at quarter past 11 here in the library. And then in the afternoon at two o'clock, 11 o'clock, the meditation's offline, isn't it? And then a quarter past 11, yeah, okay, okay 11 o'clock. And uh, two o'clock then it's open again to, to all of you and uh, we'll do the same again. But before I release you from my clutches, uh, one, one thing I just wanted to clarify was when I was talking about redshift and uh, the interpretation of how cosmology interprets uh, an expanding universe from redshift that started with the Big Bang. If you really want to know how the universe was created, we've got a book on it that I can sell you. And it goes into very intricate detail. It's called A Treatise on White Magic. <laughs> and it gives 15, 15 rules, 700 odd pages, 15 rules of white magic, how an initiate precipitates ideas right down onto the physical plane and uh, as above, so below, if you just reinterpret that on cosmic levels of ideation, you've got the lot there to impress your friends with or maybe get you locked up, who knows. <laughs> See you tomorrow.